Our world is lost in unnecessary fear and hurt. Our systems seem scientifically engineered to make you small, powerless, and always waiting for the next great leader who will fix the problems around us. Worse, we're witnessing neighbor versus neighbor while warfare breaks out around our family tables. But you have access to a spirit, a strength that enlarges and empowers you. Even better, you don't need to wait for the next big movement. You can heal the world. It's time for governance by Grace. Welcome to Gracearchy with Jim Babka. Happy to be here with you guys. My, uh, we got to start off with where we're at. We got to start with that. Where are we? So, yeah. hey, we're here with Dave Brisbane. So we're at the effect. Thank you. We're Dave. at the effect. We're at the effect. Yeah. We have we have left cause and we have arrived at effect. Mm -hmm. And and we're here to record this crazy episode of Gracearchy with you guys. We're like, in two San of my Juan favorite Capistrano, people. where the swallows come. Where the swallows come every year. Have they come this year? It's already over. Yes. It's over. Yeah, came gone. Okay, that's good. Jim's joining us all the way from Ohio, right? Yeah, we're sitting. So San Juan Capistrano, we're in California. That's a long way from home. It's a little bit. Of, yeah, I just flew out just for this. Yes. Because it's <laughs> just important. in a few other dozen things. A few yes. other dozen. World one trip. It's a world one trip. But glad to be here. And and I fascinated with the church you're very close to the freeway here great location mm -hmm. how did this all come to be it was uh in fact we're going to be 16 years old tomorrow so uh 16 years ago we started out in dana point harbor and then uh, two years later we ended up at the suite right next door it just happened that this was a place that had space and it worked for us and uh, we've uh, been here most of the time since Okay, so that's kind of like your location story, but like, what's the backstory to being here in the first place? Why the effect, first of all? Oh, okay. Um, the uh, the genesis of the effect was that we started out as a recovery ministry, so we were working with addicts and alcoholics, and the whole idea was that we were creating a hub and a place where addicts and alcoholics could connect and be able to find their spirituality to enter into spiritual formation. So we were recovery ministry that also worshiped together on Sundays. And, uh, and so the idea of the effect itself is that we are chasing the effect of God's love, not the cause of God's love. So we're not focused on theology. We're not focused on doctrine. We're focused on how that works out in our lives. And when you're working with alcoholics and addicts, you can't deal with abstract. You got to deal with the next concrete step that can be taken in order for them to get here from there. And it turns out that's the way we all function as well. And Jesus' teaching itself was all very concrete, not about theology, but about practice. You know, I'm fascinated by that because you actually have uh, profound theological thoughts. And as you sit down and you explain in your books, you know, who you are and what, you're what your experiences have been in life. Um, I haven't finished reading them yet, but I have started, mm -hmm. both of them. And what I see in, in those is actually you are thinking, it's not just experience. There is like, hey, who is God? What's he up to? Um, why are we here the way we are? Like, yeah, there is some of that in there. Absolutely. Sure. The, the idea there though is, is that whatever, uh, system we use to build our theology, we're going to have to use the same system to deconstruct it and get back down to, to ground zero. Otherwise it, it's not going to be seen as legitimate, you know? So those hermeneutical rules that we use to build theology, we're going to use the same one. So it involves having to think through the theology completely, but then to get it back down to ground zero. Because what Jesus was teaching us was an orthopraxy, not an orthodoxy. He was trying to teach us right action. How do we live from day to day? And that's what we've been trying to recreate here. And so when you, when you say that you're starting off with uh, addicts and they need everything to kind of be at that concrete day-to-day -day level, 
why? What is the significance about their situation that maybe makes them a little bit more in need of that kind of attention? Oh, they're at the precipice. They're at the edge of all things. Um, their world is spinning. Uh, they're, they're coming out of withdrawal. They're coming out of detox. They're, they're right at the beginning of rebuilding their lives. And so in that kind of situation, um, they're not really thinking clearly about things. They just need the next step to take and the step after that. It has to be very concrete. It has to be very one-to-one. -one. So even when we talk about theology, we don't do it in abstraction. We always, if I'm going to bring up a theological point, it's because I can make a one-to-one -one correlation with how this works in daily life. It has to have that, that connection or there's really no point in talking about it. But for an addict and alcoholic or anybody who's in emotional distress, I mean, that's the way we function. Mm -hmm. That's really all we, our bandwidth allows us to handle. That present moment then, just... Absolutely. That's what it's all about. It's not some future thing, which I get, right? But right now, if it works, practical spirituality right in this moment is what, is, is what matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I get this feeling, um, I would describe it as one of the, the ecstasies or joys of my life where I do gain theological insight on something, I start to see how the bigger picture fits together. And those epiphanies, those moments of creativity or contact with something that seems to be beyond me, um, give me, ecstasy is the right word for it. They give me a real joy, a real burst. Yeah, yeah. Um, that I feel like the need to share. That's the next thing that has that happens. But um, that's part of the walk and the experience too, right? Absolutely. I mean, in, in, it, it is a balance. Okay, it's almost never either or. It's always both and. Um, but I think we, we've got a saying in recovery that you don't think your way into right acting, you act your way into right thinking. Say that again. You don't think your way into right acting, you act your way into right thinking. Okay. It's, it's kind of a cognitive behavioral kind of approach, CBT. Sure, yeah. You know, the idea is, is that if we can change our behavioral patterns, it can also change our thought patterns. Truth of the matter is you're doing both. You can change your thought patterns that can help you change your behavioral patterns. But when you are really in, in those distressed moments, when you are under duress, um, it's really the change in behavior patterns that are going to be the most concrete that can take you through. Then you can give voice to it. You know, as you get to the other side of that, uh, of that uh, crisis, then you can start to give voice to it. How do you express what happened? Now your theology starts to take flight again. Um, and like I said, both can help each other. But where we really live our lives is in the day-to-day -day moments. And so really our thoughts and our concepts are the means to the end of being able to live in relationship better. So I imagine you have some strong opinions on willpower. <laughs> sure. Share some with us. How, how, do you, how do you want to talk about willpower? Well, I, it, it seems to me you're in a ministry. I'm, I'm imagining Christ is an, an added extra bonus, like the ribbon on the top. He's probably the actual present, right? Mm -hmm. So why would someone, why would willpower fail? Why would you bring in something like a, a relationship with, with, with the creator? Like what is, like work inside that space maybe. Okay, okay. Um, the first step of AA is admitting that you're powerless over dot 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 you know put in your drug of choice if it's alcohol if it's drugs if it's some kind of process addiction and your life has become unmanageable so the first step of aa is telling us that there comes a point where we do not have the power the willpower if you will to be able to make the choices we need to make we are so inside 
of that addiction. We are so inside of that obsession, compulsion or whatever, that we can't actually get out to the outside. So there's no will at that moment? There, yeah, there's no way for you to be able to will yourself out. Okay, okay. You have you have some agency. You're just like, I'm not going to be able to think myself out of this. Right. Now, to, to say that you don't have the power or you're powerless or your will is not strong enough is not to say that you're a victim. There, there, there's a difference there. Okay. Uh, my definition of a victim is someone who doesn't have a choice. You know, if you don't have a choice, you're walking along the street, the van pulls up, the mask guys come out, grab you, hog tie you, you don't have a choice. As soon as you get a hand free, now you have a choice again. Mm -hmm. What do you do with that? And so the choice we have, though, is to move to the second step, which is come to believe that there is a power greater than ourselves that can and will restore our lives to sanity. And then the third step is to give yourself to that power. So the choice that we have in that moment of powerlessness where willpower alone isn't going to work is to hitch our wagon to the power greater than ourselves, which then, then can take us out of that ditch. So willpower is connected to this power that's greater than ourselves. There's also a distinction between willing and wishing, you know? <laughs> Definitely. You might wish that you were no longer addicted. No, you may wish yeah. that you could lose 10 pounds, but if you're not willing to get up and change your diet and exercise, you're not going to get there. So there's a difference between those two as well. Because the willing part is where you actually take the first steps in a new direction. Um, wishing keeps you static, keeps you in place. And I don't know if we're getting any closer to your idea of will. No, I think that's actually exactly what we were okay. looking for. I think that's, I love that you broke that down along the lines of, of the AA 12 steps. And so I, I, I'm assuming that in the ministry that you do here and work with addicts, you're doing a 12-step program. Yes, yes. And, and that is even controversial in Christian circles. You know, is it really a 12-step program? Why? That when we get criticized for, for uh, adhering to a 12-step program, it's because Christians will say it's not a 12-step program. It's a one-step program. You know, believe on Jesus Christ. and, and Oh, yeah, I, I get you. Okay. So to, first of all, to identify as an alcoholic or an addict, um, many Christians will, will take issue with that because we're not identifying ourselves as, you know, followers of Christ or oh, because there's, of God, that sort of thing. There's some conflict between identifying yourself as an alcoholic who is Christian. It's a one or other kind of thing. Yeah, I, I suppose it could be that as well. But they're seeing if you're identifying yourself as an alcoholic, then you are not, yeah, I suppose not identifying yourself where you need to be with God. And especially if you continue to do that for the rest of your life, because yeah. add, addicts and alcoholics, if they are in 12-step programs, will continue to say, you know, hey. Yeah, my name is Bill. I'm, I'm, alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic. Even though I've been sober for 20 years. Exactly. Yeah. And so they, they see that as, as an abdication of our identity in Christ or identity in God. But really what it is, it's just an acknowledgement that this is your weak spot. Yeah. If you don't continue to be vigilant in this area of your life, it will re-overtake you. And so it's not saying this is... Who, this is not my deepest identity as an alcoholic, but it is saying this is one of my areas that I need to keep a watch on. <laughs> Thank you, waste management. If you can hear this right now. <laughs> the joys of working in the field. The right? joys of working in the field, yes. Yes. Should we just pause it a little for a second? I mean, we're going to turn off the recording. Oh, I'm just going to make a note it. that it's like, you know, 1120 or something like that in and uh you know, what can we do? Okay. This, th can... this notion of being able to embrace both, 
you know, I've been to churches where I'm not acceptable if, unless I'm completely according to dogma, right? Bill, you, if you don't fit, you're out, right? That doesn't work. But there are also churches that are inclusive that say it doesn't matter whether you're gay or trans or, you know, straight or whatever. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or a Catholic or a Protestant or, you know, some other fine refinement. They, they welcome everyone. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter whether you're an alcoholic, you're still welcome at the effect, right? Well, I mean, shouldn't it, shouldn't it be that way? Okay, so I come from a background that was, I was raised fundamentalist. Uh, in my early adulthood was evangelical, you know, kind of drifted from the fundamentalist into the kind of the seeker sensitive uh, world. Um, so, you know, we were taught I, I, essentially that certain sins were like so bad and others were like kind of okay. You know, and if the one that was very okay was to, to be obese, that was, that was completely fine. Right. You can, you can, you can, in fact, we're going to have a gluttony me meeting after the, the main service here today, yeah, exactly where we're going to serve nothing but carbs uh, yeah. that everybody brought from home. Uh, and then everybody's going to overeat while they're there. Cause you know, there's so much to choose from. Right. Right. Okay. So, you know, we come, I come from that background, but I, I it, it increasingly appears to me like there's, I've heard this phrase that that this is a, that a church should be a hospital for for sinners like everyone should should be able to come in there and and if the idea is that we have all sinned and even from my fundamentalist background dave the every sin was sin like one sin you're you're, you're a sinner that was that set the, the stage yeah why are we keeping score as to what kind of anything that anybody's doing in any way shape or form and not making everyone feel a hundred percent welcome to come through the door yeah, why indeed? Absolutely. In fact, let's take it a step further. How are we I, 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 uh, defining sin? Oh, yeah. The, oh, okay. Oh. Okay. I want to hear your definition of sin. <laughs> All right. Because I got thoughts on this too. Okay. Because normally the way we define sin is to define what's unlawful. If it's unlawful, then it's sinful, right? Yep. Right. But this is not what Jesus is certainly telling us. And if you take a look at Matthew 5, you'll see how he's trying to redefine the law and redefine sin. But really what sin is, and often you'll hear people say, you know, from the Greek or even from the Aramaic, it's a missing of the mark. Mm -hmm. But the missing of the yep. mark of what? Yep. Yep. Well, God is unity, oneness. That is the essence of the monotheistic notion of God. Right. It's what the Jews actually named their God. If it's, if it's Eloah, Elohim, you know, Allaha, whatever, it means oneness and multiple things functioning as one. But does so, that also, go I'm sorry, I got to interrupt here, but does that also include no separation? No separation in terms of... In other of, words, to be able to be missing the mark, you have to, it implies that you have an option about your aim. But if you're already included in the oneness, that is Allah, Allah us, um, there's no way to miss the mark. Well, certainly there is within ourselves. Oh, sure. Within ourselves. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So so if, if God is oneness and if he's created a universe that basically is built on the unity of everything, then we're missing the mark if we're not part of that unity. We say, OK, I'm not going to play. Exactly. I'm not in this game right now. And it can't it doesn't have to be conscious. It can be unconscious as well. It's really our egoic minds that cre create the illusion of separation. The separation doesn't exist. But missing the mark... The separation from God doesn't exist. Separation from yeah. God doesn't exist. Not from God's point of view, certainly. Yeah. And not in actuality, not in reality. But we can imagine that it does. And our hurts and traumas and everything from the past can put us in a place where that is our default position. So sin then becomes not in lawfulness. Sin becomes the state of being separated 
And so anything that we do that leads to separation and the notion of division is sinful and anything that leads to greater connection is righteous. And so that's really sin is the separation. And in fact, when Jesus comes to take away the sin of the world, that sin is singular, it's not plural. And so the idea is sin has an aggregate sense of a state of being, the ability for us to be able to see ourselves in real time, which is what kingdom is all about living in that quality. So sin not as unlawfulness, sin not as behavior, but is what leads to separation. This will get into the ethics question because ethics becomes situational. One of the things that we always would talk about in a group session is whether lying is always wrong. And then depending on your answer to that question, it maybe comes to what will work for society. Sometimes lying is the righteous thing to do, and it's a situational thing to do. The same action can be righteous depending on the situation of life or it can be sinful. So I'm tracking in agreement with about 98% of this. That's pretty good. Now, because it's an interesting thing, I would have used different words than you used. Just I just want to wrap it a little bit, have a little more expanded picture of it. And that is that I think about, so in my line of work, I'm dealing with social interactions on kind of a national, international, state, local level, how people are governing themselves in particular. And uh, I noticed that envy is a huge factor, right? Um, someone believes that someone else has something that they want and it becomes, their state becomes such that it's not just jealousy. They don't just simply want the same thing. It might be a good person that I have a disagreement with over a model for living that would be destroyed. We see this in our political culture at large every single day. All you have to do is turn on five minutes of cable news or watch any political show on this platform. You'll find all kinds of people making the same kind of comments. So politics ends up becoming part of the division. So we have division at that level too. I noticed that sin in terms of how it's defined was defined both as a sin against God and a separation from God, which, you know, dividing us men, uh, men, men and women, like just across humanity. So if I envy your political position in a way that creates discord, that would be sinful. But if I appreciate and accept your political position, that's a mark of grace. Yes. And that's why we, by the way, this is a big reason we talk about grace because the only way it seems to me that uh, specifically that all of these attempts, uh, the, the one of the other side effects of this division that goes on is shame. There's always the attempt sure. to shame people and push them and repress them. And we're going to settle them down. And this is, by the way, is another thing that I see manifest constantly in politics. Uh, we're going to shame them into existence. I just was just reading a post yesterday on Facebook uh, by somebody who was doing the whole, you know, uh, go punch a Nazi. And they've made a logo. And on the logo, there's clubs going both direction. One of them has, you know, wire wrapped around it. Right. So the idea is that you know, we know now that this idea is so bad or so abhorrent that the best possible way we can deal with the bad abhorrent idea is that we have to punch them. We have to escalate uh, the level of violence against yeah. them. So it's literally, it becomes a demand for violence over time. And, and, and uh, you know, we saw this on the cross. This is exactly what happened to Jesus. The violence eventually reaches a point where it, it, it consumes everybody that's involved in it and no one can break it. And so they have to come up with something to sacrifice in order to agree upon it. Um, but this idea of sin, you can take exactly what you said and you can overlay the Ten Commandments on top of it, too. And, and I prefer to look at it this way. I think there's, you know, you can number them however you want. But there's one final commandment that's kind of like the coda to all of them. And it said, thou shalt not covet. Right. All the rest of the stuff, if you read backwards up through the list, all the way up to the top. The first few deal with coveting God's our relationship with God or trying to put God in some other position other than the one in which he belongs. And the, the rest of them are, have to do with coveting things or taking things from our neighbors. And, and so the second that we 
what we do in sin is we are disconnected or we're broken off from God. That separation occurs, but we are standing now where? We have to find a place to stand. Yeah. We have to find a place to attach to it, to find a place for connection. And the things we choose are th those, that's what I would call idolatry. And every one of those things are going to end up failing us. So then we end up in a position now where the only way that we can get back to wholeness is to reattach to the source in the first place. And that solves, that's addressing the problem of sin. And that would be then ending sin. That would be no longer missing the mark. It would be realigning and hitting the mark, which is God. Yeah. So the gospel to me is you're sitting in the crap. You're, you're just in the deepest, darkest part of who you are. Uh, the stuff that you wouldn't share, you wouldn't express out loud, you wouldn't tell other people. Everybody's got this stuff. They're hidden deep down and there's shame attached to that. And a lot of people don't understand that the Eastern culture, and I'm starting to get into some of the stuff I know you you deal with, Dave, with, with looking at not just Western Jesus, but, you know, the Eastern perspective. A lot of what happened in that story of the crucifixion is a shame story. To be hung on a cross is to be cursed. And so what Jesus did is he took that shame. And what, it, what, what the way I look at that is he comes down into that deepest, darkest part of us. None of this stuff is hidden from him. And he still says, I love you. And we spend our time kind of running like, no, no. And the light hurts. We don't want to turn to it. We, we flee. And then as a result, uh, there's, I mean, I think a, a lot of people have crashes. Some of them very cataclysmic, like people who are at the very edge, as you said, or spinning out in addiction where they need realize now I got to reattach. Like what I'm, what I've been doing, my plan here hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's important also as we as we we try to think this all the way through, is to think about God's will as not being a what but a how, because we get obsessed with the what. We want to know what we're supposed to do. What really what we're looking for is the risk-free life insurance policy that will give us the plan, the absolute plans. So we make no missteps and we never make a mistake, and the outcome is clear. And of course, we never get that in life. I you know no, we need we need to set this up. This is a business we can go into. We can multi-level it. It'll be great. All right. I'm sorry. That's what we always want from God. When we think of God's will, we think of this perfect plan that has all those components in place, and then we never get it. And so the question then becomes, what is God's will then? If God's will is the most important thing that we can know as human beings, and yet he's not telling us, and we got to figure it out and execute it perfectly, or our life is always less than, um, that's, that's just cruel. But what turns out is that God's will is being shouted from every page of scripture and really is written into the universe, but it's a how it's not a what. And right, so when right. we, in other words, I believe that God doesn't really care what we do, but he cares deeply how we do what we do. And with the right how, any what will do. Because with the right how, certain what's are off the table. They're always harmful. They're always going to be leading to division. Yeah, and it's important you say that because like right away, people's right. minds, the first part of that, exactly. they really jump to, well, wait a minute, I can think of all the stuff. I exactly. Get. You know, but in terms of life choices, career and, and spouses and all that stuff, those are our choices. How do you make them then? Well, follow your bliss. But you don't need to be looking for God because God's not necessarily going to answer those in ways that are objective enough for you to follow. But with the right how, with living our lives in that connection, living our lives in sinlessly in the sense of the, the sense of unity with everything else, that is going to sanctify, if you will, the what's that we choose.